You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. like every year, there are new updated results concerning the state of Christianity in America today. Companies like Barna, uh, Pew Research is one of them, uh, several research-driven conglomerates uh, have this tendency every year to survey vast populations of America only to confirm what most of us, I think, intuitively feel like is happening regardless, which is this, people are leaving the church. Year by year, the number of people who attend regularly church services across America decreases. In fact, uh, people who frequently or weekly attend church prior to the pandemic, that number was somewhere around 50%. So if you take a survey of America, uh, the, the people who say, yes, I am a Christian, those of that group that attend weekly church services, roughly 50% prior to the pandemic. Post-pandemic now, today, that number hovers around 33%. Uh, not at City on Hill, of course. You are saints of the living God here every week. But, but even in infrequent attendance to church, this number has changed. So now, post-pandemic, uh, infrequent church attendance is up to 56%, prior to the pandemic, 41%. So here's what it means. It means that more people are attending less frequently and less people are attending more frequently. And the fallout hasn't just been in church attendance. For example, the number of Americans who just outright identify as Christian, that number continues to fall as well. 77% in 2017 to a new post-pandemic low of 68%. Moreover, every single denomination saw a weakened or a decline biblical worldview developed over the last several years. People not only don't think biblically as well as they used to, they don't even really know how to think biblically anymore. Recent surveys have addressed or rather revealed problems with orthodox theology concerning the person of Jesus Christ or the Trinity or the exclusivity of the gospel or the reality of hell. You have people who have a lessened view of Christ as maybe just a moral teacher or a kind of a superhuman, a, a Hercules, a half man, half God kind of person, or, or they deny the Trinity or, or they think, well, maybe there's more ways to, to the Lord than just the gospel. Or you'll hear things like a loving God could never allow a real hell. It, it demonstrates something about the breakdown of the evangelical mind of the last decade or so. And it can be disheartening, right? I mean, when you read these surveys, when you see the trends in America, it's kind of disheartening. And beyond disheartening, it's rather confusing too, especially in light of some of the things that Jesus says, uh, for example, in Mark 4, 21 through 34, which, oh look, happens to be our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them to Mark 4. What am I doing? Mark 4, one of the most extensive treatments that Mark gives us of the parables of Jesus happens here in Mark 4. I mentioned at the very beginning of this series that unlike Matthew and Luke, who are going to provide you a, a number of parables, a number of the discourses of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, Mark is actually an action gospel. 
You don't get as much of the teaching and the discourse and the parables of Jesus in Mark's gospel. You get action. Jesus, uh, it, the, the focus of Jesus in Mark's gospel is more on what he did rather than what he said. Chapter 4, of course, is an exception to that rule. More than 75% of this chapter is committed to the parables. Now, last week, uh, Dr. Reeves covered the largest parable in all of Mark's gospel, the parable of the sower and the soils. And now this week, we're going to cover three additional parables, all of which point to the various aspects of the kingdom of God. The, the kingdom of God, let me just say this, is a major theme in the teachings of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you remember all the way back to chapter 1, what were the first words of Jesus in his earthly ministry recorded in Mark's gospel? Mark 1.15, he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom is central to the ministry of Jesus. Beyond that, it's central to how we pray as Christians, isn't it? Remember the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. I always feel strange quoting just a part of the Lord's Prayer, so let's say it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, there it is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And for those of you who grew up King James, even though it's not in the earliest manuscripts, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's a major part of how we pray. Yours is the kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not in future, not in the eternity, eternity future, but now in the present on earth as it is in heaven. So we need to understand the nature of the kingdom. What should we expect of the kingdom of God? How is it described? What is it like? What does it look like in, in the real world? I think these three parables give us answers to those questions. Now I want to say up front, before we get into the text, that at the time of this narrative, the church had not technically been conceived yet. There are some lines of theological thought that, that, would, that would suggest the church has sort of always existed. And I think that sounds nice. Uh, it's very difficult to support that from the text. For example, in Matthew 16, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What does Jesus say to him? You are Peter, and on this rock I built my church 4,000 years ago. No. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will, future tense, build my church. Meaning hadn't been built yet, but it will be built on the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And I believe, just so I can show my cards, that that happens post-Pentecost at the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Now, why does any of this matter? Because I think we need to recognize when we read a passage like the one we're about to read, that the church has not been built yet, but that the kingdom of God that Jesus is going to refer to is ultimately going to come to its fullest realization in the church. In other words, everything that we're going to learn about the kingdom this morning is true for the church today as well. It's just not present at the moment that it's being spoken. It's forecasting what the church is going to be like. So I say all that to say that throughout this message this morning, I'm going to use the terms kingdom of God and church sort of interchangeably because I believe that the church is the fullest expression of the kingdom on earth. So let's dive in. We'll begin with the first parable, the parable of the lamp and the lamp stand. If you have your Bibles open, Mark 4, let's read verses 21 through 25 together. It says, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? 
For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So remember up front, I want to remind you that parables are simple illustrations that are used to illustrate a singular idea. We don't want to get into the habit of parsing out every tiny detail of a parable and trying to make it make sense in the real world. It's not how parables were used in the ancient world. They're used to illustrate one grand big idea. The point of this parable is simple, like every other parable. It is simple. The point is this. A lamp is meant to be seen, not hidden. That's what the parable is explaining to you. If you hide the lamp, you negate its entire purpose, which is to bring light to everything around it. The lamp here, by the way, in the Greek language, luknos, it's a word common in Koine Greek, to describe a clay lamp that was very common in ancient homes to light the main room of a living space. So this is your living room light. Everyone has a like living room light. You may have other lamps, but you have like one main living room light. That's what this is. The terms basket and bed, by the way, in this, in the original language, they're, they also point to common items in the ancient world. A bed would have been a bed or a couch piece, something you sit on. Uh, a basket would have been a linen basket, something uh, that, that held the linens of the home. And the point of this is very simple. You would never light your clay lamp, your main light in the living space of your house, and then take it and put it under one of these other items. Why? Because it would serve no purpose at that point. It would be a useless thing. The purpose of the lamp is not only to be seen, but to provide light for everything else to be seen. Covering the lamp negates the purpose of the lamp altogether. So the question for us is this. In the parable, what does the lamp represent? Parables are illustrations. They illustrate something that connects to the real world. What does this illustrate? Well, let me ask this question, just so we're doing the textual work here. What do the other parables talk about? There are three parables in a row. What do the other two actually talk about? Verse 26 and verse 30. This is the start of the second and the third parable. What does Jesus say? Verse 26, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Verse 30, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? So let me just give you the answer. The lamp is the kingdom of God. The lamp is the kingdom of God, the church. And check this out, just so we don't forget. The lamp is meant to be seen, not hidden. Now, why would Jesus need to say this? Why does he need to clarify to his disciples that the kingdom of God is meant to be seen and not hidden? Because at this point, it is hidden. And it is being hidden intentionally. It is being veiled intentionally. If you remember last week, this is the entire reason Jesus speaks with parables. Uh, Mark 4, 11, Jesus told the parable of the sower and the soils. And the disciples were confused. They're like, Jesus, why are you speaking that way? We don't understand anything you're saying. That doesn't make any sense. Why are you talking in parables? He says in verse 11, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything else is in parables. In other words, the disciples know what's going on because Jesus is explaining it to them, but no one else has any idea what's happening. They just think Jesus is kind of crazy teacher that speaks in really confusing terms. Now, why would he do this? Because the time wasn't yet for the kingdom to be revealed. 
there's a divine timeline. Galatians talks about when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to be born of a virgin. There's a time, there's a specific time in the mind of God when Jesus would die and be raised again. And the kingdom would be revealed and the spirit would fall on God's people and the church would come alive. It, it wasn't a random moment. It was a, there was a date on the calendar that God had in mind and it was not this day. And so at this point, the kingdom is being veiled. There's a time coming when it will be unveiled. And that's the whole point of this parable. The lamp is used to bring light to everything around it. It would be nonsensical to keep it hidden forever. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, don't be mistaken. Though the kingdom is being veiled right now, it will be unveiled someday. It's not meant to be hidden forever. There's coming a time when all things will be revealed. The kingdom or the church is a lamp. And after the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the lamp will be put on a lampstand and it will shine light into the darkness of the world. This is, by the way, just so we can connect the dots to other parts of scripture here, the reason why Revelation refers to the churches, the seven churches, as what? lampstands. If you remember in chapters 1 and 2, Jesus comes and he makes an appeal to seven churches, seven churches of Asia Minor. How does he refer to the churches? He refers to them as lampstands, Revelation 1.20. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The big idea of this parable is that the church shouldn't be covered up. It should be seen. The church shouldn't be hidden. It should not only be visible, but by it, everything else becomes visible as well. Now, this should deeply challenge the way you view the church and the way you view your own personal faith as a participant in the church. The modern world that you live in, or really more accurately, the postmodern world, that's where we are now, would have you segregate your faith from your public life as if this is a virtuous thing. Your faith is private. That's what you do on your own time. That's your thing, right? Don't bring it into the public. Don't let it impact me. In other words, I don't want to see it. Keep it hidden. It shouldn't be visible to everybody else. This is especially common in discussion about law, right? Law in, the, in America. We have a lot of talk right now about abortion law in America. Very big topic right now. And people in the world, and even Christians, would have you, have you separate your faith. You know, you keep your faith out of public policy. That's exactly the opposite of how the kingdom is intended to operate. He literally just said, don't put the lampstand under the bed. Jesus is saying, stop, don't do that. The lampstand should be visible. Now, don't be a jerk about it. You need to operate with love and the, and the power of the Spirit, but it should be visible. Listen. Perhaps part of the reason year by year we see statistical decline in the church in America is because Christians and even pastors have been so dead set on putting the lamp under the bed. You want to see people walk away from the church? Hide it. Make it obscure. Make it irrelevant to everything that is happening in the world around you. You want to see the church explode in growth? Put it up high. At the highest lampstand you can find where it lights up the whole room. Talk about the hard issues. Talk about the things that no one wants to deal with. And apply the gospel to that. Because if we're not dealing with it, you know who is? The world is. And they're doing a terrible job at it. I mentioned to you at the welcome, we have a conference coming up at the end of spring break where we are going to be uh, dealing with the topic of sexual identity and transgenderism within middle school and high school. We're going to be tackling these issues head on. That makes some of you a little nervous. You know what should make you nervous? is a church that's not willing to deal with this stuff. 
We're not only willing to talk about it, we're bringing in Denise and Gary, experts, professionals in this field who deal with us every day. This is an issue that is taking captive millions of people at this point. And so we're just unwilling to remain silent about it. It's why we do conferences like this one. It's why we offer the groups that we offer for sexual abuse victims, for women who have had abortions, for people who struggle with pornography. Why do we do this stuff? Because we take this whole lampstand thing kind of seriously. I think oftentimes, the churches that are in decline in America are in decline, this is not a popular opinion, are in decline because Jesus has removed the lampstand from them. Because they were unwilling to take it out from under the bed. Do you remember what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus, Revelation 2, 4, and 5? Keep in mind, Ephesus, the Ephesian church, big deal. Big church. Jesus said, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, it's all good because we're all about love around here. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Those are hard words from the Lord himself. Maybe we ought to consider that that's what's actually happening in America. It isn't that the church is in decline. It isn't that the church is on its way out. It isn't that the church has had its day in the sun. It's that Jesus has been removing lampstands from churches who are only interested in playing a game of words. I'm not interested in a game of words. I'm interested in seeing the gospel impact people's lives in meaningful, real, compelling ways. So not here, not today at least. City on a Hill will be seen, we will be visible. It will not be popular all the time. I would rather receive criticism from Google reviews than from Jesus himself. Just my opinion. Are we having fun? Let's keep reading. Second parable, verses 26 through 29. Jesus says, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, and then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Uh, this is a, a quick parable, but it's an important one because it reminds us how growth happens in a church. The parable is about a man who sows seed, and as the days go on, the seed sprouts and grows, and he has no idea about how any of this works. He's like, I, I throw the seed down, and I water it, and it went in as a seed, and when it comes out, it's not a seed anymore. I don't know how this happens, but he knows when it's ready because the grain blossoms, and then it's time for harvest. So get this. The seed in this parable is, it harkens back to last week's parable, the message of the kingdom, the message of the gospel. The ones scattering the seed are Christians, sharing the gospel. The harvest are those who genuinely receive the seed, the message of the gospel. They repent of their sins and are born again and added into the kingdom. But I think the most interesting part of this is the phrase in verse 27. The seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. First of all, I just want to, I, I laugh a little bit when I read this because I think about like 2,000 year ago pre-modern man and like the magic of farming, right? I don't know how any of this works, but it just works. It's awesome. I throw the seed out there, it rains, boom, food, right? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me today, by the way. Uh, I don't understand it. Something is going on behind the scenes though, right? He can't see it, but he knows something is happening because he can see the results. So again, to bring this to our context, who is ultimately responsible for the growth of the church of Jesus Christ? 
God is. Now we have our part to play. We gather, we proclaim the word, we worship the triune God in his glory, we observe communion, we share the gospel, we baptize, we make disciples, we do all the things we're supposed to do. But at the end of the day, God, or more specifically, God, the Holy Spirit, brings the growth. It's important that we remember this. The role that we play in this is very minimal. In fact, I would say it's, it's like, it's negligible. The role of the Spirit is crucial, not only to our spiritual development as individual believers, but to the development of the body as a whole. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. We're nothing. I'm nothing. Only God who gives the growth. Some churches think they are far more responsible for their growth than they really are, right? Metrics and statistics and marketing and demographics, and there's nothing wrong with those things. Those are good tools. We should be stewards of the things that God has given us. But none of those things, hear me, lead and captivate a heart unto repentance. It's pretty easy to gather a crowd. It is impossible to draw someone to repentance. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And when you remember that as a church, as pastors, it takes a whole lot of pressure off of you to perform or, 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 or see the results come. I do my part. That's all I can do. I leave it to the Lord. That's all we're called to do. That's Jesus' whole point here. We do all the right stuff, but growth is mysterious. It comes outside of us, outside of our ability. It's the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the third parable, verses 30 through 32. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. And yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Again, I think a pretty straightforward parable. The kingdom of God is like the smallest seed that you can possibly imagine in the ancient world, the mustard seed, but when it is sown, it sprouts up into this massive plant and all the birds from everywhere come to make their home there. So I just want to point out two aspects of the church today from this parable that I think are important for us to remember. The first one is this, that the church possesses unexpected qualities. In other words, the church looks different than what you probably think it should look like or imagine it in your own mind. It's unexpected in its qualities. For something as big and powerful and as, as imposing as the church is intended to be in the world, you would expect it to be compared to other things that earthly kingdoms are compared to in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, for example, uh, earthly kingdoms, particularly large and powerful earthly kingdoms, are often referred to as uh, the cedars of Lebanon which sounds like very foreign to our Western minds, but I mean, these are just very large immovable trees, right? Something that couldn't even be shaken by any other natural element. That's what this kingdom is like. They're big, they're imposing, they're impossible to move. And we're not just talking about the earthly kingdoms, we're talking about the kingdom of God. So you would expect something even bigger than the cedars of Lebanon. And Jesus is like, a mustard seed. That's unexpected. That's not what I, that's not what I expect. Smallest imaginable, I have a picture for you, smallest imaginable seed. But in many ways, this struck me this week, the kingdom of God shares the same characteristics as the God of the kingdom. The mustard seed is small, it's meek, and yet when fully sprouted, consuming. Both Christ and his kingdom 
begin, at least in Christ's incarnational reality, small, meek, and yet when fully sprouted, not even the universe can contain it. Jesus, as he takes on human flesh, is like the mustard seed. He's the suffering servant. He's the one who washes feet. He's from the backwoods of Nazareth. He's relatively unknown and unrecognizable. And yet at the same time, he's the one who holds all things together by the word of his power. Uh, for those of you who do not know me well, I am a student of church history. I love patristic theology. I did my second master's in early church history. Uh, I'm studying at a PhD level systematic theology with church history as an emphasis in what I'm doing. And uh, one of the guys that I love to read is Athanasius of Alexandria, one of the church fathers during the patristic age. Um, his body, I'm going to read this quote from him because it's, it's just so powerful concerning Jesus. His body was for him not a limitation, but an instrument, so that he was both in it and in all things and outside all things, resting in the Father alone. At one and the same time, this is the wonder. As man, he was living a human life, and as word, he was sustaining the life of the universe, and as son, he was in constant union with the Father. You see Jesus in his incarnation walking and talking and eating with his disciples and laughing and sharing stories and teaching and, and doing all these things. And what the people of that time didn't recognize was that at that very same moment, he is holding everything together, sustaining life across all the universe as the God of the universe. Jesus appears, though, as the mustard seed, small unrecognizable in the beginning. And the church begins this way as well. Small, insignificant to the world, and yet it becomes consuming. And notice that the text says that it attracts the birds of the air. And that brings me to my second point. It not only possesses unexpected qualities, but it attracts unexpected people as well. Now, I want you to pay attention to that term just for a moment, the birds of the air. It's almost certainly an intentional phrase Jesus is using here. There are places in the scripture, again, in the Old Testament, where we find this phrase, and it regularly means the same thing. In Psalm 104, 12, Ezekiel 17, 23, Ezekiel 31, 6, Daniel 4, 9 through 21. In every one of those instances, the birds of the air refer to outsiders. So in the immediate context, Gentiles, us, unless you're an ethnic Jewish person, we're the birds of the air who come and make our nest in the kingdom of God, in the mustard seed plant the church, Gentiles, but, but in, a, in a broader application, just people who didn't originally belong to that community, but eventually settle into the community and make their home there. The church is like this. The church is a community, but an open community to people from the outside who want to come and make their home here. And, and we have opened our doors through the years to all kinds of unexpected people with unexpected stories, who weren't welcome in other churches because of the life they lived or the sins of their past or the things that they had done. And we were like, yeah, come on. We weren't welcome there too. Great. <laughs> there are a lot of applications, I think, that we can make to this text. But there's one I want to focus on this morning, and it's a unique one, and, and something that, that began happening here um, a couple of months ago. If, if you've noticed, if you've been paying any attention, especially this morning, we're in a pretty full room this morning. Um, and we moved some families. We kicked them to the 8 a.m., just to make room. Because we, we want to welcome not only individuals, but we've had this very strange and awesome opportunity to welcome potentially a, a church to be a part of City on a Hill. Several months ago, I began talking to another local pastor, Brad Marvin, who pastors Restore Church in Arlington. 
uh, church plant of about six to seven years ago, and for a lot of reasons, more than we have time to talk about this morning, they began looking for a change, and we started talking about the possibility of a church adoption. Uh, my eldest daughter, uh, Jessica and I adopted. Uh, Brad, incidentally, has a, an adopted child as well, which is, I think, an interesting connection. And in, in an adoption, the one being adopted takes on the name of the family that they're coming into and, and learns the cultures, learns the customs, learns the family. But at the same time, there's a kind of respect for the culture that they bring into the family as well. And it's a beautiful thing. And, and, and the, the adoption language, of course, if you're a student of the word, no, it permeates through the Bible, particularly in the way that we relate to God. We're children of adoption into God's family. And so we began talking about what this would look like. Brad loves the ministry that we do here. Uh, he's had some training with, many of you recognize the names, John Townsend and Henry Cloud, authors of several of the books we use for our Freedom Group Ministries. He, he buys into the idea of the help, hope, and healing ministry, the head, hands, and heart. And so we started praying about it, asking hard questions. Our elders asked a lot of hard questions. We prayed about it. We, we tried to figure out, like, you know, is this really where the Lord is leading us? And, and it's like every question we had, there came an answer. And we, the elders, believe that the Lord has brought this unique opportunity to us. It's a, it's a win-win in a lot of ways to bring them in. About 40, 50, maybe 60 adults and their kids. So not, a, not an unmanaged. I think someone first service was like, how big is this church? <laughs> They're thinking like, is it another three or 400? Per, no, it, about 40 or 50 adults, maybe more. We hope more. We hope a lot more. I want to see the vision of City on a Hill carried out to as many people as we can get it. But it's a win-win. The families of the Restore Church get to remain in community together. They have familiar faces that they see that they've been serving with alongside for several years now, along with the new faces of our wonderful, beautiful, shining faces here at City on a Hill. These families have been attending, serving, giving at Restore for a long time. Our hope is they will continue to do that here as well, and their continued support will allow Brad then to come on to our staff in an associate role without impacting our 2024 budget. It's a win-win. Brad obviously will be in a different role, an associate role. We have an idea for what that's going to look like. But he'll get to continue to live out his calling that we believe he has been called to, to bless our families here as well as God leads all of this out. For you practically, here's what it means uh, for, for you at City on the Hill. It, just a few more new faces for you to get to know and connect with and, and share life with, which is a beautiful thing. For families to connect, love one another, shepherd alongside one another as we live out the help, hope, and healing ministry that we've been given. There's obviously a lot more to the story that I want to share with you, and so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. On Wednesday, this Wednesday, at 6.30 p.m. in the worship center right here, from 6.30, I don't know when the stop time will be, when we're done, I guess, no later than 8.15. Um, I'm going to have Brad here with me. I'm going to share a little bit more of the details of how this all came together. It's really a pretty amazing story. And uh, we'll do a little Q&A with Brad. I want you guys to be able to get to meet him as well uh, and ask questions. I'm actually going today uh, to Restore to speak with the families there. For, for many of you here this morning, I want to just say personally welcome. Um, it's, it's, uh, I look forward to getting to know you and, and answering your questions. Yeah. If you are in a freedom group, we realize those just began last week. 
Uh, we're going to start those at 7 p.m. on Wednesday. That gives you 30 minutes. And so I'm going to prioritize those of you who are in freedom groups that if you have questions, I want you to be able to hear the, the kind of unfolding of the story to begin with. And then if you have any particular questions that you're like, man, I really got to ask that, uh, then, then there's going to be ample time for you to do that before you go to your freedom group as well. Um, but it, it's just a very exciting thing, I think, that has happened. I've never heard of anything like this before, but this is really truly what I believe church cooperation can look like. I believe that we will be, as a City on a Hill family, blessed. I believe these families will be blessed as well. This is what Holy Spirit growth looks like. We do our part. We proclaim the word. We worship him. We stand for truth. And at the end of the day, he does unexpected things as he brings growth to the body. And we just kind of go like, I, what? I didn't think that would happen, but uh, okay. Okay, Lord. Yes, Lord. I think so much of pastoral ministry, I said this first service, is, is not about like how we lead forward and give vision. I think it's really just about how we get the heck out of the way and let the Lord lead. Jesus is the head of this church. So we want him to lead. We want to stay out of the way as much as possible and let him do his work. I want you to notice as we close verses 33 and 34. It says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Jesus is going to continue to veil the message of the kingdom. He's going to continue. The time's not right to unveil it. The time is coming. He will go to the cross and he will conquer the grave, but the time is not right now. I think it's appropriate as we close our time this morning, talking about the nature of church, that we observe one of the two ordinances given to the church, and that is the Lord's Supper. And so as our uh, elders and ushers begin to pass the elements around, I want to, as always, lay the ground rules. There's always a couple things that I want to remind you of every time we do this. Number one, this is for believers in Christ. So I want to be very clear about that. If you're a guest with us this morning and you're not a Christian, we are thrilled that you are here with us. We welcome you with open arms. I pray that the gospel will captivate your heart in the same way that it has ours, that this is a practice meant for Christians. And, and we believe that is very clear from the text. And so we would ask you to abstain. Secondly, is this is not meant to be taken lightly for Christians. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I always want to encourage you that if you feel like because of some sinful pattern in your heart that you've not yet repented of and confessed, and you feel prevented by the Spirit from doing this, a check in your heart, it is the mature, hear me when I say this, it is the mature Christian practice to abstain. There will be other opportunities to observe the supper. We have to examine ourselves as we do this. Uh, as you have already, some of you received the elements, I'm gonna read the passage, and then Kelsey is gonna lead us in a song, and you may begin taking them as soon as I'm done reading the passage, and then I will close us at the end, just to give you some time alone. Don't wait for me to give you the go. When you feel led to, you go ahead. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
also want to tell you just to prepare over the next three weeks biblically as we continue in Mark's gospel, we're going to be looking specifically at the things over which Jesus is Lord. And I am very excited about that. Jesus is Lord. We say that a lot, but what does that really mean? I think the next three weeks are going to give us a picture of some of the things over which Jesus has lordship that might surprise you. God bless you. We'll see you next time.